That sure was great. Good morning, everybody. Sure, a privilege to be with you again and to share once again with you the uh, Word of God that's been laid on my heart. And I've given uh, the title for today's message, uh, Jesus Confronts Depression and Despair. And it sure seemed to fit that song. When she first began, she sang the words, uh, you know, uh, on the outside, everything okay, but on the inside, pain and hurt. As 21st century people, you and I live in a world that has a bad case of uncertainty. There's a certain amount of fear of terrorism and a certain amount of war jitters. And of course, I refer to 9-11 and its aftermath. We now have 7-7, the day London experienced a terrorist attack on the underground and the double-decker bus. And we just read of suicide bombers daily in Iraq. We also have been aware just these last couple of days of the attack on the Egyptian resort of Sharm el-Sheikh. And on and on and on it goes. Every time I board an airplane now, I'm reminded of the terrorist threat. And as I go through the security checkpoint, because of my knee replacements, I set off all the alarms. And I'm told in a very gruff voice, stand over there. And it's a designated mat. And then I'm told to remove my shoes, take my belt off, empty my pockets of everything, and then extend my arms wide as I'm checked over. And our leaders tell us that the war on terrorism will last a long time and the confusion and depression is going to continue. And it's in times like this that we need to hear once again the words of the Prince of Peace, the Reconciler, the Redeemer, the Savior, the one that we heard the song there toward the end, Restore Me, the Restorer, and uh, I think it's so wonderful that we can come to God today. Depression is a common part of human experience. And each of us will be depressed sometime in our lives. And a number of therapists have been treating 9-11 depression syndrome for some time. In a book entitled The Anatomy of Melancholy by Richard Burton, the author says that if there is a hell on earth, it is to be found in the melancholy or depression of a person's heart. Depression is probably the top mental health problem in the United States. One in five of the general population in America suffers from depression. At this very moment, one in five. I don't know how many groups of one in five there are here, but there are some here. As many as 70% of college freshmen 
fight bouts of depression. And there are three major categories of depression. They are called, don't worry about these two-bit terms, they are called endogenous depression, exogenous depression, and neurotic depression. Now, I'm not going to take a great deal of time to define each of these except to say that the most common one is that one called exogenous or reactive depression. And as I say, don't give up because of these fancy word words. Exogenous depression simply means that the depression experience is caused by your reaction, my reaction to the situations that we encounter in life. It can be something that will arise from the loss of a job, an illness, an argument, being reprimanded by your boss. These are all fertile areas for the growth of exogenous or reactive depression. And that depression is the kind that most people experience today. It can also be described as a form of grief. And grief is a reaction to a loss. And the grieving process takes us down into a, a low mood or a depression. The low, low mood obviously is deeper for some than others. And they be, may depend on the nature of the loss suffered. But the big word... The really big word with regard to this kind of depression is the word loss. Loss. There's a loss of some kind. It can be real. It can be imagined. Or it can be a threatened loss. A threatened loss may be the, a prediction that we're going to have an earthquake next week. And we get all worked up about it. Now, the passage that I want to read for today is a very moving story of a man who seems to be depressed, discouraged, and victimized. And I would like for us to look at this man, and then I would also like to take a fresh look at the Restorer, Jesus, and see how he confronts this issue of depression if you have your Bibles, would you turn to the Gospel of John, chapter 5. John's Gospel, chapter 5. And we'll read the first 15 verses of John, chapter 5. Beginning to read at verse 1. After these things, there was a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem now, there is in Jerusalem by the sheep gate a pool, which is called in Hebrew Bethesda, having five porticos. And in these lay a multitude of those who were sick, blind, lame, and withered, waiting for the moving of the waters. For an angel of the Lord went down at certain seasons into the pool and stirred up the water. Whoever then first, after the stirring up of the water, stepped in, was made well from whatever disease with which he was afflicted. And a man was there who had been 38 years in the sickness. 
When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been a long time in that condition, he said to him, Do you wish to be well? And the sick man answered him, Sir, I have no man to put me into the pool when the water is stirred up. But while I am coming, another steps down before me. Jesus said to him, Get up, pick up your pallet, and walk. Immediately, the man became well and picked up his pallet and began to walk. Now, it was the Sabbath on that day. So, the Jews were saying to him who was cured, It is the Sabbath and it is not permissible for you to carry your pallet. But he answered them, He who made me well was the one who said to me, Pick up your pallet and walk. They asked him, Who is the man who said to you, Pick up your pallet and walk. But the man who was healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had slipped away while there was a crowd in that place. And afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, Behold, you have become well. Do not sin anymore, so that nothing worse may befall you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had made him well. Amen. Amen. Let's pray. Father, as we have read these words penned by the Apostle John, inspired by the Spirit of God, we pray that you would take these same words and enliven them, make them powerful in our lives today. May we hear your Spirit speaking to us. We thank you for this gathering today, and we pray, Lord, that you would put your hand of blessing upon us, for we pray in Jesus' name, amen. As you look at this man there by the pool, I want you to use your sanctified imagination. First, as I look at this man, I see a man who is deeply discouraged. He's been an invalid for 38 years. And when Jesus says in verse 6, you wish to get well, this man does not give Jesus a simple yes or no. He's got to explain his situation. Apparently, the rule at Bethesda was every man for himself. There were no numbers to take. There was no sweet little secretary that ensured everyone would have their turn in order. And the whole system seemed to be unfair to this man. He was never fast enough. And someone always stepped down into the pool ahead of him. And I believe this discouraged him deeply after 38 years of seeing this happen. But there's more. I also see a man who feels victimized by what's going on. And I want to remind you that that person which feels victimized is also an angry person. I don't like being victimized. I don't like what people are doing to me. And I can imagine this man saying these kinds of things to himself. You know, I don't have a fair opportunity to get into the pool. I don't have an equal opportunity to be made better. And I think he was angry because he felt victimized. 
But thirdly, there's still more. I believe this man was very, very lonely. And the essence of his loneliness is revealed in the words of verse 7. I have no one. I have no man to help me. I'm all alone. I have no family. I have no friends. I have no support group. No one seems to care. I have no one to help me. How would you feel if you had no one to help me, help you? To be an invalid for 38 years is unimaginable. To we always be beaten out by someone to the pool must have been very frustrating. To have a cure so close and yet so far away because I can't get there. And to be alone on top of all this must have been extremely, extremely painful. Now, why he had no one to help him, I don't know. Maybe there was something about this man that turned people off. Maybe it was because people had given up on him and categorized him as being among the helpless and hopeless. Had the people said, I'm going to spend time with people who have some hope. You know, why spend time with this guy? He's been here 38 years. I'm just spinning my wheels. I can't help him. I'm going to go to people who maybe I can help. Obviously, in our passage, we see Jesus not giving up on this person. You know, at this point, I've asked myself a question. Maybe you'd like to ask it too. And the question was, who do I give up on? As I thought of this question, I thought of certain people that I'm finding it hard to continue the follow-up procedure. Some time ago, I had on my desk a letter that came to me from a needy person. And I was hoping that he had addressed it to someone else. Though when I finally responded... I felt a whole lot better internally. As I think how easy it is to give up on people, I thought of an insurance course I took years ago thinking that perhaps I might join my father-in-law in the insurance business. The instructor told us that on average, he made a sale after about 12 calls. And so he was urging us not to give up after we had eight turndowns. And by telling us that we had only four more to go. I'm also reminded of a certain cult that on average makes 15 calls to a given family. They're the ones that knock on the door. I think you know who they are. They have found that 15 calls are necessary. They don't give up. And I trust that you too will be challenged and encouraged not to give up on people. Perhaps it needs just one more contact. Just one more. It must have been devastating to come to the people again and again, perhaps years, but never be able to get into the pool when the water was bubbling. And again, 
using my imagination, I imagine he saw others get into the pool. And I also imagine that he heard stories or even saw them get better. And I suspect that uh, this man couldn't even be happy for them. He could not rejoice with those that were rejoicing. And so I wonder further, this man didn't experience bitterness. Now, whether or not the pool did possess healing properties at certain times, or whether people simply believed it to have healing properties, is not really the issue here. People with various illnesses seem naturally to gather around mineral springs. There's Hot Springs, Arkansas, which was credited by the early Spaniards with healing properties. And the hot tub industry speaks of the health effects of a home spa. So the issue in the passage here is that this man apparently believed that he could have been healed if somehow he could be first in the pool when the waters began to bubble. This man, I believe, had at the very least a perceptual loss. He believed he had lost the opportunity to get better. And I want to remind you again, imagined losses account for a good many depressed people. Just imagined losses. This man was discouraged, victimized, angry, lonely, bitter, He had felt a great loss in his life. And all of this amounted to depression. Here in our chapter, we have a man so fatigued and depleted of emotional strength that it's hard for him to say yes to Jesus. Yeah, I really would like to be better. It's easier for him to tell his story of disappointment and hopelessness. This man could not bear the risk of saying to Jesus, of course, I want to be better. Aren't you glad that Jesus is good enough and strong enough and patient enough and loving enough to bring healing to even this kind of a person? This man doesn't even know the name of his benefactor, Jesus. That's what verse 13 says. Now I'd like to take another look at Jesus in this chapter. But before we do, I want to remind you once again that John's gospel is a gospel that gives us seven signs. And you all know what signs are for. They point in a certain direction. That's the way. They're a sign that gives us information. They give us information about God the Father. They give us all of these things. And the first sign was changing water into wine at the wedding of Cana. And the text says in the Gospel of John that the sign revealed the glory of Jesus Christ and his disciples put their faith in him. 
To see the glory of Christ is to see the character of God and to be aware of the presence of God. And I trust this morning that we'll see and feel the presence of God. In that story of the wedding of Cana, as you all know, the wine ran out. And wine is a symbol of joy. And I have a question. What do you do, where do you go, when the joy is gone? The people in that story went to Jesus. And whatever he tells you, do it, his mother said. Whatever he says, do it. And you know what he did? He didn't just replace the same quality wine that they had before. He gave them a wine that was superior. It was the finest. Contrary to the uh, customs, when you serve, when people have drunk enough, they can't tell whether uh, the wine is any good or not. But there, here, he serves the best wine at the end. That's Jesus doing the best. That's Jesus revealing the glory of the Father. That's Jesus restoring joy to a wedding that had lost its fizz. Now, the second sign demonstrated the power and ability of Jesus to bring wholeness and healing to a person, even though Jesus was some 25 miles away. Wow. He doesn't have to be sitting next to you right there in your chair here this morning, you know. It doesn't have to be. Jesus, at a distance, can say the word and the nobleman's son was healed. At that very moment, the text says. And that tells me of an omnipotent, powerful God that is not restricted by space and time and distance. Now, this is the third sign in this chapter. And I believe it is given to us so that we can see a demonstration of what grace really means. We sometimes define grace as a gift freely given without strings. It's unmerited. It's an undeserved gift. And the man in our story received God's gift of grace. I suspect he wasn't a very likable kind of a guy, as I continue my imagination. But grace found this man. Grace loved this man. Grace healed this man. And all of this is called prevenient grace. It's the grace that goes before. It's previous. The grace that precedes. The grace that, pre that God saw in this man 
a needy soul. God saw it and God acted through Jesus, in Jesus. And brought this man. So the first thing I want us to notice about Jesus is His grace. Reaching out to a helpless person. Grace reaching out to a man who couldn't even respond to Jesus when Jesus asked him, do you want to get well? (laughs) This person is so completely healed of his 38 years of illness. And, you know, after 38 years, can you imagine what happened to his limbs? They would atrophy. And they were nothing but skin and bones. Had to be. But this man was so healed that there wasn't any need for rehabilitation or physical therapy. He didn't have to go to a chiropractor. He was healed. Totally. The second thing I want us to notice about Jesus is that he really came in order to bring genuine wholeness to people. And that wholeness goes beyond even the wonderful gift of physical health. When I think of the word peace, I know now after having studied the scriptures that it means more than uh, the stopping of shooting against another or, and, and they're stopping shooting against me. It doesn't mean simply the cessation of hostility. The word shalom in Hebrew means wholeness. It means completeness. It means totality. It means harmony. It means the free growth of the soul. It means every form of happiness. Put those all together and you've got some idea of what this term peace means. And it's that kind of peace that Jesus brings. Well, let's go back to the text once again, verses 9 to 12. The man is made well and is in trouble for breaking the law he probably had never worried about before. The Pharisees had 39 different classes that were called work which was forbidden on the Sabbath. And one of those rules was you don't pick up your bed on the Sabbath day. The man's being weighed well posed a new set of crises. And the consequences range from being stoned to death to the more likely being socially ostracized and being excommunicated or being put out of the synagogue. That's probably the most likely one. Being put out of the synagogue. Which meant that he would have no contact with people. If he was lonely before, this would have been utter, utter loneliness for this man. Then I want you to notice verse 14. Because there's an even deeper crisis that Jesus speaks about. When Jesus, what does Jesus mean when he says something worse might happen to you? 
What greater crisis could have happened to this former, this man with this former disability of 38 years? What could be worse than that? And now this new threat by the Pharisees of being put out of the synagogue. What greater crisis than is having to deal with the Jews' Sabbath laws? What is Jesus talking about? When he says something worse may happen to you. And I think what Jesus is speaking about is the disability that sin brings to a person. He is thinking of a, about a spiritual disability that is far worse than anything physical. Far worse. Far worse than an amputation or a double amputation. Far worse. The disability of sin. Because it means being banished from the presence of God forever. As I said before, Jesus came to bring genuine wholeness. Wholeness of the kind that Jesus brings is greater than any physical wholeness no matter how great that may be. Wholeness of the kind that Jesus brings goes to the core of a man's being. We sometimes call that a man's soul. And Jesus came to heal the soul, to set it free from sin's bondage. Jesus came to establish relationship with people, not to hinder their relationship. And for the soul to remain in sin's bondage, that is the greatest bondage of all. And I want us to see the Jesus who sets people free from that kind of bondage. Well, let's conclude. I believe when Jesus came into the world, he saw people with all kinds of of human needs. He saw hungry people. He saw people with physical disabilities. He saw people who were social and religious outcasts. He saw hurting people. He saw hypocritical people. He saw people who I think were looking to be simply entertained. He saw depressed people. And I think that one of the reasons, at least for this story, is to teach us that the Lord Jesus is gracious, compassionate, and loving. And he wants the best for people. It teaches us that he goes to the core of a person's need, which if the, which if the need is not met, as the text says, a worse thing will be the result. You know, Jesus never did overlook the physical needs of people as we see him in the Gospels, but satisfying the spiritual need was paramount to him. And God, I believe, still searches in grace for people and says to all, do you want to get well? Do you want to get well? But, and then maybe you respond, but, but Lord, I'm not sick. And then he may ask, do you want a relationship with me? Do you? 
Do you really want a relationship with Jesus? Do you want to experience wholeness? Is another question he might ask. Do you really want to avoid that worse thing? Do you really want to avoid that? For anyone who would like to explore these kinds of questions, or if your response is, yes, I want a relationship with you, Jesus. Yes, I want to experience wholeness. Yes, I want to avoid that worst thing. If your response is that, I'd I'd like to ask you to close your eyes. And For anyone who would like to respond that way, please close your eyes and just bow your head as we pray. For anyone who would like to experience that and who would like to say, Jesus, I would like to have a relationship with you that goes and transcends beyond my, my physical needs, would you raise your hand? Now, don't be afraid to raise your hand. Don't be afraid to say, yes, I need you. Yes, thank you. Is there anyone else? Is there someone else? They will say, yes, Jesus. Thank you for your grace. Yes, thank you. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for loving us. Thank you so much for being so gracious that even in this 21st century, you still call out to people who need help. And you still respond as you did 2,000 years ago. And Father, we thank you for those that raise their hands. And we pray, Lord, that you would uh, take them at their word and come into their lives in a powerful, fresh, new way. And uh, may they see the Savior. See the Savior, Jesus and leave healed. Healed. Dismiss us with your blessing, Father. For we pray this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.